Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, bringing to you the February 2018 meeting of the Whitechapel Society 1888, with its guest speaker David Bullock, author of The Man Who Would Be Jack, a book focusing on the suspect candidacy of Thomas Cutbush, who was named as the Ripper by the Sun newspaper in 1894, which in turn led to the McNaughton Memoranda naming three other suspects, Kosminski, Ostrog, and Druitt, as more likely than Cutbush to have been Jack the Ripper. Cutbush's possible involvement in the Whitechapel murders has received a new level of interest in recent years. And so without further ado, let's turn it over to Frog Moody in the Chamberlain Hotel in the East End of London, introducing David Bullock. Thank you and welcome. Tonight's going to be a fantastic meeting. Now this book, which is available here tonight, I have to say hand on heart, that this book is the best book that I've read on Jack the Ripper this week. It is absolutely fantastic. It really is great. So if you haven't got a copy of it, please go out there and buy a copy. Just to say in my famous uh, Irish accent, welcome to everybody here on podcast. And without further ado, I'm going to hand you straight over to David. A big welcome for David, please. Thank you. Thank you very much, everyone. Uh, first of all, I just want to say how lovely it is to be here. Genuinely, it's really lovely to be back uh, with the Whitechapel Society. It's always a privilege to come and speak to you. Um, yay, there we go. Um, I'm going to be talking to you tonight about Jack the Ripper, funnily enough. Um, never guessed that, did you? Um, about, uh, a little bit about my background, uh, about my journey into the, the world of, of the Ripper story, my research and my book, uh, the man who would be Jack. But to begin at the beginning, this is always a good place to start. So my my first kind of origins, if you like, the, the birth of interest in Jack the Ripper for me was when I was a lad. Uh, and I, like many people, watched uh, Michael Caine's miniseries, Jack the Ripper miniseries in 1988. And it was a brilliant, brilliant uh, miniseries. It, it's still up there, I think, is one of the best depictions of Whitechapel, of the investigation, of the time. Michael Caine, Lewis Collins did an excellent job. Uh, and I loved it. And I, I watched it again and again and again. I became a bit of a geek around the, this particular miniseries. I got to know the lines, uh, so much so that when I, I ended up getting a job in Windsor, one day when I was on patrol, because I work for the police in Windsor, I pass a lady, and I do a double take, and I look back, and I think, I know that face. I know that face. And I realise where I know the face from. She was an extra in the 1988 miniseries. She was one of George Lusk's vigilance uh, com- uh, group. So uh, I eventually build up the courage to go and speak to her. Uh, and you know what they say, that old saying, don't meet your heroes? Sometimes they said, don't you hear us? So I went up to her and I said, I'm in uniform as well. So she, she gets a bit worried to begin with because I'm in police uniform. So I stop her and I just say, I just want to say I really loved you in uh, Jack the Ripper's, you know, Michael Caine's Jack the Ripper miniseries. And so it took her 10 minutes to remember that she was in it. And uh, so I said, it was fantastic. You did a great job. And she couldn't, like I say, couldn't really, really remember the fact she had been in it. And then just said, oh, it was okay. And then just walked off. So it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't the experience I would imagine it was going to be. But I became this real geek around uh, the Ripper. And it it really drew me in. I fell in love with uh, the 19th century, with London, uh, with the investigation, with mystery, and with the Ripper story in particular. 
that miniseries, I don't know if, if I'm sure a lot of people have watched it, but that had uh, about, I think they filmed about seven or eight different endings to that miniseries with various different solutions as to who the Ripper was. Uh, I don't think even the cast knew who, who was going to be depicted as the Ripper until it aired on TV. The result was that it was Sir William with the girl. The, the, the version of, that they wanted to portray was it was William with the girl, it was John Netley, it was that kind of conspiracy theory, uh, and that was, that was kind of the ending. So there's me, a teenager, believing every word that Michael Caine and Lewis Collins are telling me, and I believe that uh, Sir William with the girl is Jack the Ripper, and that's kind of the end of that for me, for a year. And then my dad buys me my first Jack the Ripper book. And I suddenly realised that actually there's lots, lots more to the Ripper story than Michael Caine told me um, in the miniseries. There's so much more to it than I ever imagined. There's so many different scenarios, different solutions. There's more victims than, than is depicted in the miniseries. There's more suspects than is depicted in the miniseries. And I start becoming really interested in the Ripper story. So, like many people, I end up buying another book. And that leads to another book and another and another. And before I know it, I've got this virtual library of books all about Jack the Ripper. And at that point, I'm just reading. I'm just reading and trying to absorb as much information as I can about this story because it's fascinating to me. Never did I think that I was going to try and solve it in any way. Never did I think I was going to produce a book. I just wanted to learn as much as I could about this story. And so I'm reading and I'm, I'm gathering as much information as I can. And something that I, I come across, like a lot of people come across in the Ripper story, is there's a great deal of myth around this, inf around this particular case. There's a great deal of misinformation around this case. And that's the first kind of starting point for me was about battling through that misinformation and myth to try and get to the truth uh, of the investigation as to the clues that the police really had that they were working on. What I understood, though, very early on, was that there is a feeling, or was a feeling, that because Jack the Ripper is a, such a sensational murder case, the most infamous murder case in history, that there's a lot of people out there that think the answer must be equally sensational. That the answer must be the likes of William Withy Girl. It must be the Queen's physician or the Prince Albert Victor or a famous painter, a famous actor, a musician. It has to be someone of significance. Then what you learn, uh, as, uh, as certainly what I learned as I went over the, through the years and learned as much as I could about that case, about serial killers, is that actually serial killers are not the spectacular. They're anything but the spectacular. And in fact, when you look back at Jack the Ripper and the, the individual who was Jack the Ripper, he was not this Moriarty character, was he? He wasn't this phantom. He wasn't this mastermind that was able to evade the police because of his intellect or his significance, why he did it and why he got away with it was because he was not significant, was because he was just your average Joe. He was the Mr. Grey that is able to blend in to the society around him. If you look at other characters, other serial killers, if you look at Peter Sutcliffe, if you look at Harold Shipman, the significant thing about them when you compare them to the Ripper is that they are serial killers who almost got away with it and a little bit of luck on the police's hands, um, paid dividends, especially in the case of Peter Sutcliffe. But you look at the people that knew them. It's significant what they said after Peter Sutcliffe and Shipman were, were discovered as the monsters they really are. And it's the same thing that happens almost every time a serial killer is caught, is that interview that happens, isn't there? There's always that interview on TV the very next day, and it's with a neighbour or an old school friend or someone that used to work with them. And what do they say? They say, I never would have thought that they were capable of doing that. They were so nice. 
They were so quiet. They were so meek. They were so mild. They helped in the community. This is the trick of the serial killer. And this is the trick of Jack the Ripper. So for me, what I learned on my journey through this story was that actually I really shouldn't be looking for the significant, the spectacular answer. I should be looking for that Mr. Grey character, that person who is able to, to simply blend in and sort of swim seamlessly underneath the, the radar of suspicion. That's the person that if I stand a chance of trying to uncover evidence to try and prove who this was, that's the type of person I should be looking at. And of course, over the years... There's many bunny books, isn't there, that's written about Jack the Ripper. So you've got all these different theories to, to kind of work with and juggle. And some are very, very significant. Some have a lot of credence to them. There's others that are a little bit daft. There's others that are a little bit silly. Along the way, there's been all sorts of different suspects. There's 100 plus suspects, isn't there, in the Ripper story. We have uh, the silly. We have people like the Elephant Man. We have escaped gorillas. I've even heard of that once, and, and a Dracula character, apparently. We have the Tumbleties, don't we? We have the Maybricks. Uh, we have uh, Thomas Cutbush. We have all sorts of other solutions to this story. So as I'm growing and as I'm learning, I'm, I'm working through my books, and I'm, I'm trying to gather as much information as I can. And there becomes a moment in my research which is particularly significant for me. And that's when I look at the McNaughton Memoranda. And we're all familiar with that, I take it, the McNaughton Memoranda. So the McNaughton Memoranda was, was written in 1894. McNaughton is the chief constable of CID. He's a significant character in the police. And he writes this memoranda. And it's not me that discovers it. It was out there in the public domain. I just came across it. It was already published in books. And it is significant. And it's probably the most significant document in the history of the Ripper story. And the reason for its significance is, is because for the first time, the police are presenting their prime suspects. So McNaughton writes this document. As to who it's intended for, it could be the Home Secretary. It was certainly intended for somebody. He wrote this document, he put his name to it, and he names three suspects who the police believe are likely to be the Ripper. One of those suspects is his prime suspect. So we have three characters. We have Montague John Druitt, we have Michael Ostrog, and we have Aaron Kosminski. Now, the reason that document is so important is because when it was then discovered, I think in the 70s, and Dan Farson then wrote a book, including in that book this document, the McNaughton Memoranda, that then grabbed a new audience. Books started to be written. More books started to be written. Documentaries started to be made because the prime suspects were known for the first time. We had in the public domain the police, the, the chief constable, one of the top dogs, his names as to who he thought was likely to be Jack the Ripper. But what's significant about that document is the reason it was written. Because the reason it was written wasn't really to say to the world, this is who I believe Jack the Ripper is. The reason it was written was to exonerate a fourth name in that memorandum. It was to actually get whoever was reading that document to look beyond the fourth character that is mentioned in that memorandum. And that fourth man is Thomas Payne Cutbush. So that memorandum was written in 1894 after the Sun newspaper had published several articles depicting their theory as to who they believe Jack the Ripper was. And lo and behold, the person that they think Jack the Ripper is, is Thomas Cutbush. And not only that, Thomas Cutbush is alive and is in Broadmoor. So here we have this expose, the Sun newspaper have put their best reporters on this case, Lewis Tracy, Kennedy Jones, they're two top, top reporters, top writers, to investigate the story of Thomas Cutbush. 
the person who gave that newspaper the tip-off is the important character in this because he is William Race, an inspector, the inspector who actually caught Thomas Cutbush. Now, I'll go into that a little bit later as to who Race was and the significance of him capturing Thomas Cutbush. But a little bit more about the document, the McNaughton Memorandum. We have the three suspects that are named by McNaughton. We have Druitt. Druitt was a barrister, a teacher, a man who was not violent, a man who thought he was going insane like his mother, a man who was uh, sacked from his employment at the school, it would appear, because uh, they discovered or believed that he was homosexual. So he's lost his job and he commits suicide on the last day of 1888. He has no violent tendencies. There's nothing really to connect him to the Jack the Ripper story, but he is one of the three that McNaughton is naming as these viable suspects in the Jack the Ripper case. We have the second guy. So we have Michael Ostrog. Michael Ostrog is a con man. He's a burglar. He's not a killer. He's not a violent man in particular. He's more used to the use of a revolver than a dagger. There's no real evidence to, to support the theory that he was a likely suspect. And in fact, when you look at the evidence, he probably wasn't even in England at the time of the Ripper murders. So it kind of rules him out a little bit, wouldn't you say? Um, then we have the third man, Aaron Kosminski, and we've all kind of heard of Aaron Kosminski, especially of late. Aaron Kosminski is a lunatic, isn't he? He's a lunatic. He claims he knows the movements of all mankind. Uh, he eats from the gutter. He, has, he engages in solitary vices. He's sent to an asylum. Um, and his only acts of violence are to break a chair and threaten his sister. So these three men are the three suspects that Melvin McNaughton is putting forward as being viable and more viable than the fourth man, Thomas Cutbush. So in brief, Thomas Cutbush is a dangerous man. In brief, Thomas Cutbush is a man who owns two Bowie knives, who attacks women. We know that much for sure. Whose own family was so scared of him about the violence that he had in him and how dangerous he could be that they turned him over to the local authorities where he escaped from very quickly. Now, even in brief, what I've just said about Thomas Cutbush puts him, in my opinion, above the other three. When you add to that the fact that Cutbush looks like the man that was seen with a number of the victims before they were killed, a man that was seen in the area, the vicinity of the murder scenes, either before or after the murders, that adds more significance to him, in my opinion. So for me, even in the early days of researching Thomas Cutbush and the McNaughton Memorandum, I could see that actually there was something in this document of significance and something in Thomas Cutbush of significance. Because why would you, if you are the chief constable, go out of your way to try and exonerate Thomas Cutbush? Why would you do it? And of course, McNaughton kind of gives us the answer. Towards the end of his memorandum, he kind of just covers over this. He just mentions this in passing, the fact that Thomas Cutbush is the nephew of the executive superintendent of Scotland Yard, Charles Henry Cutbush. That's pretty significant, isn't it? that you've got this unique document, and apparently at the end of the document, the person who's written it believes that the suspect that he's trying to exonerate happens to be related to one of his pals in Scotland Yard. Now, that for me was really significant. It was a, a real groundbreaking moment for me in my research when I found that McNaughton memorandum because I suddenly had a vision of, of a viable suspect, more so than I ever had before. For me, prior to coming across this document, I had worked out that... Beyond looking for this Mr. Grey character, this person that, like I say, goes under the radar of suspicion, you can kind of break down the person that we're looking for into certain criteria. 
as to a viable suspect. First of all, and this is a pretty logical one, if you've got a name of a suspect that you think is Jack the Ripper, you've kind of got to prove he was in England in 1888, haven't you? Um, That's a bit of a given. So he's got to be in the area, and certainly in the area of the East End and Whitechapel. Um, He's got to have a motive for starting, hasn't he? Every serial killer has a motive for beginning his murders or her murders. They don't just wake up one day and decide they're going to start killing. There has to be something that is the catalyst for that. If you look at Sutcliffe, if you look at Shipman, they all have that story, that catalyst, that moment that tips them over the edge that starts them into this killing. So we have to have the criteria met. We have to have someone that knows the area or certainly was in the area at the time of the murders, someone who has a motive for beginning the murders, someone who looks like the person who was the ripper, in my opinion, someone who would have come under suspicion. Again, I know I keep referring to Sutcliffe, but Peter Sutcliffe was suspected of being the ripper long before he was caught. He was interviewed several times by the police and a little bit of luck, wasn't it? A little bit of luck that they had on their side and they caught him. So someone that falls under a bit of suspicion. And then, of course, we have this main criteria. The main criteria that you have to tick this box, if you like, is why did they stop killing Because serial killers do not stop. They will keep killing. They will have lulls of activity. They might have a month. They might have a year. They might have two years when they're not killing. But that that impulse to actually kill will never leave them. And even when they're incarcerated, if they are incarcerated, there will be clues in their behavior as to what their true um, desires are. So that need to hurt people, to rip them up, to stab people, it won't leave them. So there's the criteria for me that we need to meet to make someone a viable suspect so I looked again at the McNaughton memoranda I looked into Thomas Cutbush and I started my journey into the Thomas Cutbush story which took me now over over 10 years I never realized where it would take me and I think a lot of authors probably will will say this you never realize the journey you're on sometimes until you're at the end of that journey Uh, I remember how I felt the day my book came through the post and I held it in my hands for the very first time when I got to the end of that story. And, of course, it carried on into the, the latest book. Um, but I never imagined when it started who I would meet, the characters I would meet, even being here today talking to you. What I found out about Thomas Cutbush was that we have a man who is a significant suspect, a man that when you read most books about Jack the Ripper or you see documentaries about Jack the Ripper, he tends to get overlooked. I saw a Vic Reeves documentary many years ago, and for the first time, did you see that? Yeah. For the first time, Cutbush was up there, wasn't he? He was in the top five, I think. And I'm pretty sure that Cutbush was the first to be eliminated out of that top five. Because just like the Ripper story, there is so much myth around Thomas Cutbush. Thomas Cutbush was arrested. So he was arrested in the March of 1891 by Inspector William Race. He was arrested for stabbing or attempting to stab two women in the area where he lived in Kennington. Now, that moment, if you like, in history where Thomas Cutbush is stabbing women, that has turned into a bit of a myth along the way. He stabbed a woman with a bowie knife from behind, a significant wound to her. And I've seen that interpreted in different books as a Dagger, uh, sorry, a toy dagger stabbed in the ankle. That's the myth around Thomas Cutbush. So he has been looked over sometimes because people are looking at the wrong evidence. They're kind of looking the wrong way when they really should be looking and focusing on the truth of Thomas Cutbush. What we have is a man who lives with his mother and his aunt in Kennington. 
about 45 minutes away from the heart of the Ripper territory, if you like. A man that got employed in a job a month before the murders began. So remember what I said about the criteria, about being there, being in the area? Well, here we have Thomas Cutbush employed in the July of 1888 in the heart of Whitechapel. So a month before the murders begin, and he is right there. Now, he ends up employed in various positions, but he ends up as a clerk in a tea trade and a canvasser for a business directory. Now, the canvasser for the business directory is an important role because part of that is like you're a door-to-door salesman, in essence, so you're selling business space um, for this publication. And that means you get to know the area, don't you? Pretty well. You, if you're a door-to-door salesman, you're going to get to know the, the A roads, the B roads, aren't you? You're going to get to know how to get from A to B as quickly as you possibly can. So it gives this person a unique insight into the area. Now, we know from the interviews that subsequently happened with family members and people that knew Cutbush that he associated with prostitutes. And part of that association with prostitutes led to Cutbush believing that he caught syphilis from a prostitute. The thing that's significant when you look into the Cutbush story is Cutbush's belief that he himself was a medical man. He told people that he was a medical man because he read books. He read a lot of books on, on the medical world, on surgery. He studied anatomy. He had an interest in anatomy. So much so, when the police eventually raided his rooms, they found drawings of women mutilated, of notes depicting, horrendous notes depicting women. He had a hatred of women, it would seem. And where that came from, so it seems, is his relationship with prostitutes, that he believed he'd caught syphilis from this prostitute, one in particular. And he went to his doctor said to his doctor that I've caught syphilis and therefore you need to treat me for it. The doctor says, you haven't got syphilis. But Cutbush, thinking he's this medical man, thinks he knows more than the doctor. So he forces the doctor to prescribe medication to himself. That medication, Cutbush ends up over-medicating. He over-medicates, which then causes some significant disfigurement to his face, some burning sores upon his face. Now, you've got in Cutbush someone who is a bit of a narcissist, who is regularly seen looking at himself in the mirror. Now, if you've got someone who enjoys their own image, and that image is suddenly distorted because you've over-medicated, because you think you've caught syphilis off of a prostitute, for me, that gives us that other criteria. When I say about a motive for beginning... Cutbush suddenly has this hatred, it would seem, towards prostitutes. We know that his mother and his aunt were overbearing, so it seems. Uh, he was the apple of their eye. Like I say, he lived in this middle-class middle house in Kennington. The, the, the house itself was very well decorated. It had pianos, it had chandeliers, but Cutbush's room upstairs was different. So the police, when they raided his room, said that it had wooden floorboards. It was pretty sparse. Maybe a writing table, pretty dark, the stench of sweat perspiration and Cutbush's notes and his own drawings and then they found clothing stuffed up the chimney Cutbush had hid his own clothing up this chimney up this chimney breast and he covered it in turpentine now when the police looked at the clothing they realized it was covered in mud and blood and the turpentine well that would tell us he's probably looking to burn it question would be why are you looking to burn your own clothes that are covered in mud and blood so going back to Cutbush. So we have Cutbush in the area of the murders. We have Cutbush's own family that are getting scared about his behavior. They know he has this interest in surgery and anatomy. They tell the police, and the other people that know Cutbush corroborate this, is that he spends most of his time reading these books, studying these books. And at nighttime, he will often be out walking the streets of London. He will return home covered in mud, covered in blood, and his face is often quite distorted, animalistic, almost unrecognizable 
So something is happening in Cutbush's psyche along this period of time. And this is through the period of time when the murders are happening. So we have Cutbush, who is scaring his family so much so that the family turn him over to the Lambeth Infirmary. So in 1891, so when we look at the murders, you look at the Francis Coles murder, so in the February of 1891, and only a month after that, Thomas Cutbush is given over to the Lambeth Infirmary. Now Cutbush escapes straight away. Within an hour, he's able to get past four guards. He's on the streets of Lambeth, running through the streets, dressed in a nightshirt. Nothing more than that. Um, Now, at that point, we're supposed to believe, looking back on this story, that Cutbush, all he has done is scared his family, so much so that they've turned him over to the authorities. And yet, the moment he escapes from Lambeth Infirmary, every single police station in London are wired the description of Thomas Cutbush and told to look for him. Now, I have a question there. My question is, is why? Now, obviously, he's scared his family, and obviously, he's sent to Lambeth Infirmary, but if no one is suspecting him of anything other than that, then why is every single police station in London wired the particulars relating to Thomas Cutbush? He's on the run. He's on the run for several days, and during the time that he's on the run, he makes some admissions. He actually tells people, and this is really significant with Cutbush, he tells people that the police think he is Jack the Ripper. He says he's not. He says, I'm not. I'm a medical man from London. I've only been cutting up girls and laying them out. Now, that comes from the mouth of Thomas Cutbush. That's a very significant admission, I would say. When you look back at all the different suspects that we have, here we have a significant admission from a man who is obviously very dangerous, who knows Whitechapel, who is on the run and saying that the police think he is Jack the Ripper. Now, he's not a medical man, but he's telling people that he is. He seems to think that he's got his high authority as, as a, when it relates to um, the world of medicine, the world of anatomy and surgery. But he's on the run for several days. While he's on the run, he commits these two attacks in Kennington with his hunting knife, this Bowie knife that he has. And eventually he gets caught. So he keeps going back and to and from his family home in Albert Street in Kennington. And again, his family end up giving information to the local police. And the officer that arrests him is Inspector William Race. And what becomes very obvious when you look back at this story in my research, certainly, is that race is a man who believes he is caught more than just a man who has attacked women in Kennington. He thinks he has laid his hands on the most dangerous man in all of England. He thinks he is caught Jack the Ripper. And the reason race thinks that was because just like many other officers that were brought in at the height of the Ripper scare to add weight to the, infor- to the, the police enforcements that they had on the ground, race had an understanding of the type of man that the police were looking for when they were hunting for Jack the Ripper. So here he has, he's laid his hand on the shoulders of Thomas Cutbush. He sees a young man who fits the description of the man that was seen with several of the victims before they were killed. A man that is dangerous, a man that admits that he is being looked at as a viable suspect. And here he has, he's landed his hands on him. Race believes he has done it. He believes he has solved this case, or he believes at least he's got a suspect that needs to be looked into. When Race uh, first questions Thomas Cutbush, Cutbush says something else that's significant, and he says, is this for the mile-end job? The mile-end job. Now, Race has no idea what that means. Now, at this point, Cutbush is in a mental decline. So, kind of, Race is thinking, what you say may not have any significance or bearing at all. Who knows? But Thomas Cutbush says it. Is this for the mile-end job? I got away with it. They thought I was Jewish, and I got away with it. He had no idea what that meant. 
Eventually, when it became clear that race's superiors were not going to look at Thomas Cutbush as a viable suspect, race ended up going to the newspaper with his story. What happened in between time is that Cutbush went to court for the offence of stabbing these women, but he wasn't able to plead because he was deemed insane. Certainly insane enough not to be able to plead. And therefore, he was sent off to Broadmoor, where he spent the rest of his days. So he's alive, he's in Broadmoor, and Inspector William Race does not want the story to end there. So he goes to his superiors, and the superiors are kind of thinking, well, the story's kind of dying now, the Ripper story is kind of waning, it's over, there's no more victims, let's kind of leave it there, shall we? Let's just leave him in Broadmoor, let's not look at it with any sort of serious effort. But race does not want that. So he goes to the Sun newspaper. Now, can you imagine? You are a tabloid. You're TPO, TPO Connor, the man who runs the Sun newspaper. Now, this is the old Sun, not the Sun of today, page three, etc. It's a different type of Sun <laughs> altogether. So you're the tabloid, and you're looking for something really to latch upon. Right? You're looking for the story. And here you have this inspector telling you, I think I've caught Jack the Ripper. I think you're going to run with that story, would you say? Yeah, I think they're going to think there might be a little bit of money in it for them. So, as I say, T.P. O'Connor puts his best reporters on the case. They interview race. They interview everyone that knew Thomas Cutbush, work colleagues, family members. They realize that they've got a lot more here in Cutbush than even race knew. They've got a man who assaulted fellow workmates, who pushed them down flights of stairs. A man who scared and terrified his own doctor. A man who attempted to kill a solicitor. A man who is very dangerous. A man that looks like the Ripper. A man that the police aren't looking to investigate for some reason. For some reason. So the, the, the reporters get on the case and eventually they realise the only thing they can do next before they release these reports into the public domain is to go and see him. So they make this journey to Broadmoor, and I actually write about it in my book. Their, their reports and, and how they write about walking through Broadmoor is absolutely beautiful, how they actually depict Broadmoor and walking through these different wards, the female wing, etc., and eventually they come to Thomas Cutbush. But they don't get what they anticipate they're going to get. They don't get to speak to Cutbush. They get to see him face-to-face, but he will not speak to them. He simply makes a strange gesture, pulling his head back, exposing his chest, and eventually walks out. Now, at that point, this is around 1893. Cutbush was sent to Broadmoor in 1891, and he is in a steady mental decline. By 1903, Cutbush dies. He dies of kidney failure. And that kind of, it would seem, was believed to be the end of the story. Cutbush is dead. The Ripper story is dead, by then at least. And so that's the end of it. And then, of course, I didn't want it to be the end of it. I wasn't the first one to come across Thomas Cutbush. We have uh, A.P. Wolfe, who wrote his book in 1993, a great book, Jack the Myth. Um, that covered the McNaughton Memorandum and started really looking into Cutbush. But for me, I wanted to take it to the next step. Now, I realized pretty quickly that there was a certain amount of information about Cutbush that was in the public domain, but there was a significant amount of Cutbush information that wasn't, and that was at Broadmoor. Broadmoor Hospital. So in, 19, in uh, 2005, I contacted Broadmoor Hospital. I asked them if there's any chance I could have access, if you don't mind, to Thomas, Thomas Cutbush's Broadmoor files. Now, I anticipated they were going to say no, and guess what? They said no. <laughs> uh, they said no very quickly. Um, what they did say to me was, if you ask us questions we can give you some answers as to what's in the Broadmoor files. And that's great, isn't it, if you know what's in there. 
so you know what to ask. If you don't know what's in there, you're kind of just asking random questions. Things like, well, is there a description of, of Thomas Kirkbush? That would be useful. Uh, were there visits from the police? Were there visits from the family members? So they were able to get back to me, and they got back to me. This is before email. This was a letter they sent to me. Uh, I think email was around then, but they sent me a letter. And uh, the letter, the first thing I read that was significant to me was actually the description of Thomas Cutbush on his admission notes. That day he was sent, I think 23rd of April 1891, he walked through the admission block and they note down all the particulars relating to Thomas Cutbush. So I, for the first time, had a true idea of what Cutbush looked like. We knew what the reporters said Thomas Cutbush looked like, so a man, five foot nine, slim, walked with a bit of a hunch. He had quite significant eyes, um, and he actually, because of the condition he was suffering from, he had bulbous eyes. Um, but I could see in the Broadmoor admission notes a bit more, even down to a bruise on his knee and a missing front tooth. I could see that he, was, uh, he had a good education, that he was a clerk in a merchant's office. Um, and I also could see that when he referred to his eyes, they referred to them as dark blue and in brackets, very sharp. Now, what I'd noticed through my research before getting access to the Broadmoor files or even this first letter was that something significant about the, the suspect's eyes was cropping up time and again in my research. I was seeing that people were seeing, it would seem, the Ripper in the murder scenes or with the victims before they were killed, and they had that suspect had peculiar eyes or significant eyes or large eyes, particularly dark eyes, something about the eyes. And here I have Thomas Cutbush, and the first thing I read on the first page is that in brackets he's got uh, dark blue eyes, very sharp. So for me it was very significant that I had this document. But it wasn't what I wanted. What I really wanted was to get into Broadmoor and actually look at the files to find out what had happened in Broadmoor before he died. So I kept badgering them. Basically, I kept annoying Broadmoor. I contacted them sporadically over the years. And then in, uh, in 2008, uh, in, I think it was the September, yeah, it was just, just the September of 2008, they eventually said yes. I got put through to the right person who literally within a couple of minutes of a phone conversation said, okay, okay, we've just moved all the files from Broadmoor Hospital to Berkshire Records Office so you can come and view them. And I'll never forget the day. I'll never, ever forget the day that I walked there. And bizarre as it sounds, back then, when I went to view the files, I lived in Sutton, so Greater London. Now, and this is just the way it works sometimes, I live five minutes from Berkshire Records Office. <laughs> Very peculiar. In fact, I live five minutes from Berkshire Records Office and around the cut corner from a lane called Cutbush Lane. How bizarre is that? Um, very bizarre. Anyway, 2008, I eventually get into Bro uh, Berkshire Records office and I become the first person, and I'm very proud to say it, the first person outside of Broadmoor staff ever to have access to those files. I don the little gloves that you wear and uh, I spend the whole day there reading these documents. And it's an amazing, an amazing document. Three folders full of Cutbush's life in Broadmoor. And I was hoping for that smoking gun, as you can imagine. Did he tell anyone that he was Jack the Ripper? Did people suspect he was Jack the Ripper? And of course, the smoking gun isn't there. What you do have, however, is lots and lots of clues about the psyche of Thomas Cutbush. You have a man that is desperate to get his hands on a knife. A man that continually say, will say, where's my knife? I want my knife. I want to rip up those people around me. He wants to assault other people. He assaults other people, other patients in Broadmoor. Something significant about the Broadmoor notes as well that I found really important was that in 1891, when he was sent there, they had around 600 patients in Broadmoor. Now, they didn't have 600 members of staff 
That is, that is a definite thing, which means that when I'm reading notes relating to staff members listening in at Cutbush's door, I find that really significant because why would you? If you've got 600 patients, what is significant about this particular patient that makes you as a staff member, as a, a warder, having to write down what he's, what he's saying? This is a lunatic. So a lot of what he's saying is probably not going to make much sense. So why? The question why, and there's so many whys in the Ripper story, isn't there? And in the Cutbush story, the whys are there to be, to be read. And that's what I kept seeing time and again. They're listening into Cutbush. Why are they listening into him? Is it because there is this belief that he is related to an executive superintendent of Scotland Yard? Is there a concern that Cutbush is going to say something significant? There are huge gaps in these files as well. So a year or two will go by and there's nothing at all. He has visits from family members, in particular his mother. Now, remember what I said before. The family were the ones that gave Cutbush over to the local authorities. So Cutbush thought it's their fault. They're the ones that got me in here. He wants to get out. He wants to get a knife. And the reason he's in there is because, he, and the reason he can't get a knife is because his own family turned him over to the local authorities. Now, when his mother comes to visit him, on the la I think it's the last visit that she makes, he tries to bite her face. He refuses food. He gets paranoid. He will not take food from anyone. He eats very sparingly, so much so that he loses drastic weight. Now, Cutbush is very lithe. When he gets admitted, he's only nine and a half stone. So he's very light anyway. But that's the, that's the story, really, of the files that I'm seeing. And although it's not the smoking gun, for me, it was really, really significant. The fact that for the first time... I could see into the world of Thomas Cutbush in Broadmoor, and I had even more evidence that, for me, confirmed him as a viable suspect. Now, I'm sure a lot of you have read about uh, the links between Thomas Cutbush and Charles Henry Cutbush and whether or not there is a link between the two of them. Uh, people have, have knocked me previously and knocked the book to say that I'm saying there's this definitive link between the two of them. What I'm saying is what the evidence tells us. What I'm saying is you've got Melvin McNaughton, a man that wrote the McNaughton Memorandum, who is telling whoever's supposed to read that document that Thomas Cutbush is the nephew of the Executive Superintendent of Scotland Yard. But before that memorandum was written in 1894, we have some other clues. So in the newspaper reports that were written about Thomas Cutbush, the reporters gave us a little hint, a little clue as to what might be the truth about that relationship. And they said that Thomas Cutbush has relatives that are in certain positions that would draw natural curiosity. Now that is beyond your usual position, isn't it? And it's got to be. It can't be that Thomas Cutbush has got a relation who's a tobacconist or is a, a butcher or runs the market store. It must be something else significant. We also see in those reports that Thomas Cutbush is regularly writing to someone of rank at Scotland Yard. Who is that? Is that his uncle? Who is that someone, Charles Cutbush, who may not be a blood relative, but some sort of connection to Thomas Cutbush? So before writing my first book, before getting it out there, I knew there was going to be lots of questions about this link between Charles Henry Cutbush and Thomas Cutbush. And for me, I really wanted to do everything I could to try and answer that question. What I'm really fortunate about before I publish that book is that I managed to get an interview with the great-granddaughter of Charles Henry Cutbush. A little bit about Charles Henry Cutbush, or oh, a significant thing about Charles Henry Cutbush is that he committed suicide. So in the same year that Thomas Cutbush gets admitted to Broadmoor, Charles Cutbush retires. And in 1896, he shoots himself in front of his daughter, Helen. Now the question is, why 
did he kill himself? And the, so it was purported that he was suffering from delusions, depression, paranoia, and he couldn't take it anymore. But what the great-granddaughter told me was a bit different to that. So I sat down with the great-granddaughter, Claire Chevin, her name is, and the very first thing she tells me is that there is this story that has gone through our family ever since I was a child. Now, Claire Chevin lived in the same house as Charles Henry Kirkbush, the same house that he killed himself in. And she said, the family legend is that Charles Henry Cutbush killed himself because he knew that his relative, Thomas Cutbush, was being suspected of being Jack the Ripper and he could not stand the idea of being related. You know, this is a high-ranking police officer being related to Jack the Ripper. Now, that didn't come from my imagination. didn't come from a newspaper report. That came from a blood relative of Charles Henry Cutbush. So when it comes to answering the question, is there a link between the two? And we can look at the census reports and we can have our doubts because there are doubts there. It's very difficult to find a very definitive blood link between Thomas Cutbush and Charles Henry Cutbush. What I say is that I'm sure there's more evidence out there to be found. But what we do have are clues that tell us there must be some link. There must be a link. Why are the reporters telling us that he's got these relations of note? Why is McNaughton telling us that? Why is Claire Chevin telling us that a great-granddad killed himself because he could not stand the idea of being related to Jack the Ripper? For me, it's a question that I, I really do want to answer, and it's part of my continued research into Jack the Ripper. Part of uh, my research into Thomas Cutbush, certainly, and questions that came to me after publishing the first book was, where's he buried? That was a significant question for me. I, I was in talks with various te television companies, and the first thing was, where's he buried? Where's his grave? And, of course, I didn't know. So I have to say I don't know. Um, I'm pretty confident he's not buried in Broadmoor, going from the Broadmoor files, but I don't know where he was buried. So for me, a big part, a significant part of my research was trying to find out where he's buried, and is there any more clues that can be found in that? And I'm really pleased to say that I now know where he's buried. Uh, and I discovered it by working backwards, in essence. I had absolutely no joy searching for Thomas Cutbush. So I thought, well, what if I search for the other family members? What if I search for his mother, for his aunt? Might there be a chance they're in the same plot? Might, might they be in the same cemetery? And then one day it happened. One day I managed to find the family plot in which Thomas Hayne Cutbush is buried. And it was an amazing moment for me. Uh, I'll never forget it, and I'll just let you into my world for a moment. So I discover, <laughs> it's late at night, it's 11.30 at night, and I discover where he's buried. Now, I've been on this mission for a long, long time. My wife is asleep, bless her, she's had a long day. So I wake her up, I tell her, <laughs> Becky, <laughs> I've done it. I found out, I've checked it, I've double-checked it, I've checked it another time, I've turned my computer on and off, and it's still the same. He's definitely buried there. She starts jumping around. She, she's woken up, she's not that happy, but she starts jumping around, and then she says, but what does it mean? So I said, it means everything. <laughs> I said, because I've been searching for this for so many years. So the very next weekend, we go to the cemetery. So he's buried in Nunhead Cemetery in Southwark. It's called All Saints Cemetery in Southwark and it is an amazingly eerie cemetery to go around he's in this family plot if anyone knows the cemetery a little bit about it it's a huge very gothic cemetery it's one of the, the magnificent seven cemeteries that were built uh, when basically too many people were dying and they had to create these private cemeteries uh, and I went there, and it's the most amazing experience I've ever had, I think, to walk around this cemetery. And they called it the Dead Cemetery because over the years it fell into this huge neglect, so much so that the, it, the, all the, the foliage over got overgrown and it ended up being this woodland and so many gravestones were lost because of that. 
Eventually, the Friends of the Nunhead Society ended up being formed and they decided they were going to look after that cemetery and try and make it um, able or at least a functioning cemetery so that people could come and actually go around it and walk around it and see their loved ones. Uh, So I went there and I soon discovered that just like so many things in the Ripper story, sometimes things are just out of reach, aren't they? The the answer is just out of reach and Thomas Cutbush is just out of reach. You can see the area where he's buried, but he's actually buried in an area which is a nature reserve now. So it's off limits to the public. So it's this woodland. In essence, he has this this woodland grave. So you can stand on this muddy track and you can look over yonder and you can see the headstones and he's just there. But I know that a few people have uh, dared to walk into that area, but obviously um, I work for the police. So I'm not going to do anything I shouldn't do. So um, I haven't done that. But certainly I, I discovered it. He's in there. He's in the family plot. Buried on the 13th of July, uh, 1903. So he was removed from Broadmoor. A lot of people thought he was buried in Broadmoor and he wasn't. And that tells us a little bit more about the ending of the Cutbush story, really. It tells us that I think the family never stopped loving him. Uh, they wanted him with them, even at the very end. And they did so. They brought him to Nunhead and he's there. If you ever get the chance to visit the cemetery, I'd recommend it. It is an amazing experience. And there's a lot of characters that are buried there aside from from Thomas Cutbush. Um, I often refer to the Cutbush and the Ripper story. Uh, I make a comparison to this, to the Ripper story with the Loch Ness Monster. And the reason, not that I think the Loch Ness Monster was the Ripper, um, but the reason I compare the two is because uh, I get asked a lot, do you think you've solved it? Do you think we'll ever solve it? Do you think people want to solve the story of Jack the Ripper? And it's a little bit like the Loch Ness Monster, isn't it? In as much as we like to see the photos, don't we, of that shape in the, in the water. We like to see the videos and we like to hear the witness testimony. But do we really want to see that lock drained? Do we really want to know there's no monster there? Maybe there is a monster there, but do we want to definitively know either way? And the Ripper's a little bit like that. I think we people want us to get close. But the moment, I mean, we've seen it, haven't we? The moment you come up with a definitive solution or is depicted as a definitive solution, straight away people hammer that down, don't they? No, 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 it can't be definitive. Um, we saw it with the shawl, the Kosminski shawl, the DNA evidence, etc., etc. It goes on and on. But I compare it to the Loch Ness Monster because I think people want us to get close. And I hope... With my research and what you'll read, if those of you that choose to read my book in The the Man Who Would Be Jack, is that you'll see a suspect that is far more viable than anyone ever thought he was before, that for me brings us so much closer to the truth about the Ripper, about the fact that we should look for this Mr. Grey character, this person that was able to get away with it, not because of his intellect, but because everyone was looking over that way for the deranged lunatic, for the mad butcher, for the pimp, for the bully boy. And in later years, this sensational character, the elephant man, Sicket, the conspiracy, and they're not looking over here at the truth. And I think in there is Thomas Cutbush. I hope those of you that that read the book enjoy it. Um, And uh, those of you that don't read the book, well, maybe one day you will read the book uh, and enjoy it. But either way, if you do, uh, thank you very much from me uh, for listening to me tonight. And as I say, if you buy the book, I'm happy to sign it for you this evening. Before we get into the questions... um Hands up if this is your first meeting tonight. Well, thank you very much. Hopefully you'll all come back again. Lovely to to have you tonight. Thanks for coming. And what a great first meeting to come to, because I think David was absolutely fantastic. I'm going to ask the first question, if you don't mind.
in your talk, you didn't mention anything at all about um, Helen Cutbush. Have you got any information on Helen Cutbush? Yes. So uh, Helen Cutbush was Charles Henry Cutbush's daughter, and she was present when he, sadly, when he committed suicide. What I managed to research about Helen has never been put out there in the public domain until, until the book was published. And I keep using the word significant, and it is significant when you look at the comparisons between Thomas Cutbush and Charles Henry Cutbush and the extended family. What I found out about Helen Cutbush, uh, that she was called Nellie, that was her, her nickname, if you like, Nellie Cutbush. And the events uh, around her father's death, um, and I actually say this in my book, ricocheted throughout her life. So that shot that killed her father stayed with her forever. And it actually sent her in a spiral, in a mental decline. So much so that her behavior and her life actually ends up mirroring Thomas Cutbush's. So you remember I said Thomas Cutbush through colleagues down the stairs. Nellie Cutbush went into this, this decline, as I say, and became very violent, so much so that the family became scared of her, just like Thomas Cutbush's family became scared of him. She ended up locking herself in her room, bedroom at night, uh, and what she would do is, I've got a picture here of her Bible that Claire the great-granddaughter has still and she used that bible to actually assault herself so the family would hear her beating herself with the bible she would she would used to throw children down the stairs so the family became very scared of her and just like thomas Cutbush, they ended up putting her over to the local authorities and she ended up in an asylum just like Thomas Cutbush, and she ended up here in West Park Mental Hospital, Epsom. Uh, and she was admitted in around the 1950s, and she died, I think, 57. Um, so it's a very interesting aside, isn't it? When you look at the Cutbush story, and people that maybe dismiss any links between Thomas Cutbush and Charles Cutbush, well, let's look at Cutbush's son, Charles Cutbush's, sorry, Cutbush's daughter, Nellie, and here we have a direct comparison, don't we, with Thomas Cutbush, even down to being admitted to an asylum. So I just wanted to cover that briefly, and I was very pleased that um, Claire Chevin was able to show me the Bible, which I was able to take photos of. It's even got Nellie's name written in the front. Thanks for the question. Not actually a question, but a suggestion. Why don't you become a friends of Nunhead Cemetery and you can look after his grave? Yeah, it's on the cards. It's on the cards. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Good suggestion. Oh, yeah. Question about the stabbing of the two women in Kennington. Yeah, Have yeah. you been able to undercover any additional details about that? Uh, about the women? Were they normal women or prostitutes? Was it daytime or nighttime? Yeah, they were normal women. I mean, I think that there's... Uh, when people look to dismiss Thomas Cutbush, they often use the, um, the circumstances around those two stabbings as evidence to disprove Cutbush altogether because he didn't, like with the Ripper victims, he didn't eviscerate them, he didn't slit their uh, throats, he didn't strangle them. They were younger than the Ripper victims. Remember that the Ripper victims were predominantly middle-aged, but there were two that were in their 20s. Um, these victims, though, uh, are in Kennington and also not in Whitechapel. So that's another reason why sometimes they're used to disprove it. But you look at the circumstances around those stabbings. If Thomas Cutbush is Jack the Ripper, then when he is committing the attacks of Jack the Ripper, he is doing it with anonymity. So nobody knows he's doing it, so, which means he's got time. He can plan it. He can get away because no one's looking for him. In the circumstances around the Kennington stabbings, the net is closing in at that point. So he knows the police are looking for him. Remember I said every police station is wired his particulars. They're looking for him. So for me, this is a man who is panicking. Remember he's in a he's mental decline as well. So he's not planning his murders like he did when he was 
killing, uh, as in Jack the Ripper uh, murders. So I think for me, this is someone who is getting a great deal of gratification from attacking women, power over women, and he is panicking. He knows he has the clock is ticking. So um, in short, that they are for me similar to the Ripper in as much as you look at the uh, the type of attack, the type of weapon that's being used, uh, the MO in as much as attacking from behind as well. So there is links between the two. So. Women, normal women though, or yeah, they weren't prostitutes. No, they was weren't it night time or daytime? It was early evening. Yeah. Did he have a room in Whitechapel when he was working there? No. So he used to go home yeah. every evening? Yeah. Um, and also the other question was, why are you not able to find a definitive link between the two, the uncle... Because that, surely if you're tracing a family yeah, tree, you're going to... Yeah, and this is the, there's, there is so many question marks that hang over the Ripper story and the Thomas Cutbush story. This is a major one. And it obviously, originally, it stems from Melvin McNaughton. He's the one that gives us the clue that there is this, this link. Uh, why he would say it if it, he, there wasn't a link, and I have you can't find it. No, and that's, that's the strange thing. When you look at the census reports, you cannot find this definitive blood link between the two. But therein lies the question as to why, why did the newspapers say there was relatives, etc., that are in certain positions? Why would McNaughton claim it? Why would Claire Chevin, the great-granddaughter of Charles... No, it's, it's a... But that's not to say it can't be found. You said that he, ma he matched uh, descriptions of... Uh, yeah, that various people gave of people who had been seen with the victim beforehand... And in the book, you mention a guy called Morgan who had... Uh, you mentioned this in your talk where you gave last time as well, actually. This guy called Morgan had a coffee stall yeah, yeah, at yeah. Um, Came Cheese Road, yeah. end of Came Cheese Road, who saw someone called Jim. And I think, the last talk you did, I think you said that he, he went by the name of Jim or something. There was uh, reports when they first were put out in the public domain about Thomas Cutbush. He is, his name is reported as James. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But the Morgan guy... The description, yeah. He went to the uh, morgue the next day and said it wasn't Polly Nichols and it was a different person altogether. Yeah, and there is, there's several newspaper reports that refer to that. And actually, there's a, there, so I found that one and there's another one that refutes that one. So, so in other words, the, 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 whether they can be trusted or not, who, who knows? But I, I know the one you're referring to, um, that he was, he, he was uh, I don't think it was an outright dismissal in as much as he couldn't be 100% certain that it was definitely Polly Nichols. And um, when you saw the Broadmoor files, did you see the admission and the discharge papers? And if so, was there photographs attached? Because there usually is on the admission and the discharge no. pages. It was one of the one of the questions that I, in those initial correspondence with Broadmoor. Uh, one of the questions I asked, in fact, the question I asked was, was there a photograph of him? And they said at that, that stage in the, the, the life of Broadmoor, they weren't taking photos of the uh, patients when they were admitted. I was hopeful they would. Charge, you might get one as well. Nothing. Wasn't one. No, nothing. But like I say, with the Broadmoor, the Broadmoor files, as captivating as they are, um, there are gaps. There are significant gaps in them. Um, these three folders that exist. Staying with Broadmoor, how usual is it for an inmate to be not to be buried within the grounds? Is it the family one and they can take him? Is that uh, normal? It, it really comes down to the uh, I sp the financial standing of the family. Really, if they can afford to remove the the patient, then they would obviously allow that. Um, often, what would happen in, in Broadmoor that they would have a, a carpent carpentry um, team, if you like, that would make the coffins uh, to be buried within within Broadmoor. I suppose it depends on whether those family links were kept between... 
patients. team of patients, yeah, they would, they would be working and they would actually build the coffins. But it would depend as well, not necessarily, I mean, the finances is an aspect, but also as to whether there was still that contact. If you look at Cutbush's family, they were visiting him, but obviously Cutbush's behaviour towards his own family was, was terrible. I mean, trying to attack his mum when she came to visit him. So it seems like it wasn't the, the norm, if you like, but obviously if you could afford it, then you were permitted to do so. Hello. Hello. Hello, right at the back. <laughs> um, I've read your book. Thank you. Um, and one question I wanted to ask is, a fictional book or is it a fictional with facts thrown in or is it a fully factual book so it's uh do you mean about the there's elements of dialogue in it where there's elements yeah. of dialogue and that, like that as as well yeah. i was not really going to mention the catherine eddowes bit because yeah. um there's a there's a few bits on the catherine eddowes side that may not be right okay. so that kind of made me think well is it fictional so, so this is so to answer your question it's, it's based on the, my years of research uh, and what I wanted to do and also my years of reading Ripper books because obviously there's so many Ripper books out there a lot of them are very good some uh, take a bit of reading some can be hard to get through what I really wanted to do was to make a uh, create a book that people wanted to read and was able to go from one page to the next and actually not want to put it down and that wasn't making these huge leaps uh, but it was a using I suppose the element of artistic license to make things flow and so it doesn't get too difficult to go from one chapter to the next um, it wasn't about fabricating it wasn't about doing anything of that nature but it was actually using um, what I had as far as evidence but making that readable for the for the audience and sometimes obviously incorporating that into dialogue was that was the mechanism to, to do that um, but you're it's a very good question so quite quite a few people have asked that sort of over the years um, but it is based I mean this is why the new book in particular has got the the sources in there so it's so if, if someone wishes to you know go back and actually look at where the information's come from but thank you thank you great question hi there um, very fascinating by the way thank you thank you um, I just wanted to know, after all your years of research and actually finding the grave and going there, how did you feel when you actually found the grave? Because obviously you're putting, it's a real person then. Yeah, obviously yeah. Obviously all the research that you're doing, yeah. so almost like fictional until you like, actually see where it's, someone's buried. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's like, I, I mean, I... It's a bit like Little John, you know what I mean? It is, it is. It's a sort of like fictional sort of character, but he wasn't, and everybody knows where Little John's buried. Yeah, yeah. But like when you sort of go there, would you go back there? Would you like sort of actively sort of... I I think for for me, it wasn't necessarily the end of the story, but certainly it was... It was kind of that final chapter for me of us to trying to find that missing piece. And I'm sure there's missing pieces out there that are yet to be discovered. Would you carry on as much as you have done in the past? In, with my research? Yeah. Um, the, the, I'm now working on, well, there's a book that I've been working on for eight years that I'm now writing. So it's a, another, it's a, basically it's an Edwardian murder mystery, true crime, which I'm now in the writing stages of. So my uh, efforts, if you like, are all being ploughed into that because obviously I write outside of my day job, uh, which is very, obviously I work for the police, so there's a lot that I have to do in that day job. Um, so that my efforts are really geared towards that my interest never wanes my interest in the ripper and 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 reading other books and reading other theories i'm always open to that and me and frog were talking earlier that if my book uh, inspires a reader to actually learn more about the case or about Cutbush, that's what it's about for me it's about and i think frog you'll agree that you're the same that it's about telling a story that gets other people interested um whether they 
fully believe what you were saying or not, whether they, they, they put the thumbs up and say, well done, you've solved it, or whether they just say, actually, I want to take it myself to the next level and start researching it, more power to them. Um, but to answer your question, it was a very unique experience going to Nunhead. I never imagined I'd ever find where he was buried. I thought it was going to be a closed chapter, uh, hence why I was jumping around, <laughs> waking my wife up at 11.30 at night. It was a very uh, unique experience. And like you say, you do, he, becomes, he becomes a very real person at that point, doesn't he? Yeah. Any more? Um, can I ask one more last one? Of course, one? Frog. Yeah. Yeah, of course. About the double event, you mentioned about the double event, a second oh, yeah. double event. Yeah, yeah. Can you just tell us a little bit about that, 1889, was it? Yeah, so again, if you look at the, uh, well, it's like anything, I think, with the Ripper, you, you, there is so much information out there, isn't there? And anyone that's written a book will know just how, well, anyone that's reading books will know just how much information is out there. And actually, the, the little nuggets that you can find they're sometimes open, it's like Pandora's box. And as you'll see in one of the, uh, the appendixes in the, in the new book, I talk about uh, a, a, what could be another attempt at a double event. Uh, and it relates to the uh, Alice McKenzie murder and another attempt to uh, assault, murder a prostitute uh, within hours of that incident. Uh, and what's significant about that second, if it was part of a double event, is that that happens streets from Cutbush's home. Um, but I'll leave that for the reader. I think there's a lot to read into that. And, and again, talking, talking about uh, what we were saying about giving people kind of a, a, an opening into other research, this is an avenue, I think, that when I finish the new book I'm working on, I'm going to go back and revisit this potential double event to see if there's more to be discovered. If it turns out to be a closed door, then so be it, but it might, be, it might lead on to some further evidence that's out there. I think there's a lot out there to be discovered. I think you probably will agree there's probably an attic that's got some hidden secrets in it or, or a basement somewhere, so we'll wait and see. Okay, with that, um, once again, I would like to, I think it's been a great way of kicking off the new season, a great first talk for 2018. I'd like to thank David for coming here tonight and uh, a lot of people have said Cutbush has always been sort of like bubbling under, but on tonight's performance, people start to think, hmm, maybe, maybe there's something in it after all. So and without further ado, let's just give David one more big round of applause, please. Well done. And that was David Bullock at the February 2018 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. I'd like to thank Mr. Bullock, Steve Ratty, Frog Moody, and all of the members of the Committee of the Whitechapel Society for making the release of this excellent presentation possible. If you'd like more information about the Whitechapel Society, to become a member, purchase books, subscribe to the Whitechapel Society Journal, or look at upcoming speakers and events, please visit whitechapelsociety.com. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations, all about Jack the Ripper, East End history, and Victorian and Edwardian crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, you can contact us on the Casebook message boards, or find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast. I would like to thank all of you for listening, and we'll see you next time.